in our last teaching, we did Ephesians 2, 1 to verse 3, right? 1 to verse 3. And we just um, quickly examined some things there about what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. You know, where he says that we walk according to the course of the world. And we tried to look at what he was trying to say there. That the course of the world, walking according to the course of the world, would also refer to walking according to the authority of the power of this earth. All right, and that's why I spoke about how the how that the word air there is the Greek word um, is the Greek word aero, which actually refers to the low, sorry, not aero, um, is the word aer, sorry, and it refers to the lower air actually. So it refers more to this our um, this earth, all right, referring more to the world, this our world, all right, and how that when we say that the devil is the prince of this world. We mean is the God of the systems and the authorities of this world. And that's why he passed when he says the prince of the power of the air. So he's not the God of the earth, correct? He's not the God of all creation. The devil is not. However, because he walks through men, he walks through the systems and the affairs of this world. All right. And that was why I have explained this to you guys again and again. That when Bible says in Romans 5, verse 12. That as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, that the word world there is actually referring to the systems and the operations of this world. That sin entered as a reason of um the sin of Adam, sin entered into the systems and the operations of this world, all right. And then I continued to explain when he says the spirit and now work at in the children of disobedience. And we asked the question that the disobedience there is it a disobedience of um of every man. Or the disobedience of Adam, all right? And in our study, we got to understand what disobedience is because by the time we got to Acts 3, it says we had our conversation, all right? Conversation there referring to our affairs, how we conducted our lives. In time past, in the loss of our flesh, it says fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. So before, so we are children of disobedience, and then he also calls children of wrath. And I just explain what. Wrath there means that when we talk about the wrath of God, as you see in John chapter 3, verse 36, the wrath of God is seen in the unbelief of man. And the wrath of God is not essentially what God does, right? The wrath of God is actually the absence of God. That the man decides by a portion of his will not to receive the salvation that God offers. And in doing so, he has put himself away from God and is now a recipient of the wrath of God. So the wrath of God is not an active involvement of God. Rather, it's a passive involvement of God in that it is man's intentional desire or his will to be absent from his creator. Hence, that is what is called the wrath of God. All right? So that is a figurative statement. And so, any anyone who decides to disobey the gospel or does not receive the gospel is found in the wrath of God. So a child of wrath is a child of disobedience. Therefore, explaining that disobedience spoken about in verse 2, when they refer to the disobedience of Adam, but disobedience of anyone who doesn't receive the gospel. All right. So that's that there. So we're just gonna move straight up to um verse 4. Verse 4. Now, having spoken about who we were before, he moves into verse 4 and then begins to say. But God, who is rich in mercy, so he talks about the expanse of God's mercy, right? He, he, now he's about to introduce to us God's involvement in this work, right? He has always spoken about who you were before, dead in sins and trespasses, etc., etc. And then he starts off in, in, in presenting to you God's involvement in this work, 
It starts off by letting you know that what God did was as a result of the expanse of his mercy and his great love. So, our introduction into what God did for the man who was dead, right, is that he did it as a function. So, the first thing that Paul wants you to realize, all right, in the things that God did for mankind, is that God did it as a reason of the expanse of his mercy and his great love. Those are the two things to first of all recognize. That he did it as a reason of the expanse of his mercy and his great love. Now in verse 5, he says something very interesting. He says, even when we were dead in sins, as quickened us together in Christ, by grace we are saved. Now, I don't know if this is just me, but this is a bit confusing. He says, even when you were dead in sins, as quickened us together. It would make sense to say, before... It makes sense to say you were dead in sins before, and now you are speaking you together. Rather, he says, even when you were dead in sins, are speaking us together. This should actually make you raise an eyebrow, right? So the question then would be, how is it possible that when we are dead in sin, he are speaking us together? Now he goes on to explain. He says, just you know, in a phrase following, by grace you are saved. By grace you are saved. Now remember that in this chapter, from verse 1, he already establishes to you the fact that you are, or at least you were dead in trespasses and sins. Or this person spoken about was dead in trespasses and sins. Now, a man who is dead, of course, cannot do anything. All right? You were dead. And hence, if you were dead, it means you could not have an involvement in what was done. You could not have had an involvement in what was done. And so if you can't have had an involvement in what was done, whatever the work of salvation would have been, would have been totally without your involvement. Completely without your involvement. Hence, that would refer to the grace of God. Simple. Meaning, he did it totally for you. He did it totally for you because you had no part to play. There was nothing you could have done. You know, this just is a thing so folks who like to talk about, you know, they say, I gave my life to Christ. All right. And people think we are trying to be um extra um what's the word now? We're trying to cause problems. So we say it's not possible for you to give your life to Christ. But the truth is that that physiology means a lot. It does, it does, it means a lot because there is such a thing as giving your life to Christ, but that's not what happens in salvation. That's what happens in service, in the work of ministry, right? But in salvation, you have to agree that fundamentally there was nothing you had to give. And hence, it was actually you that received the life of Christ. All right? That is what drives on the point, all right? Because that's the reason why it's hard for a lot of people to understand the whole idea of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because they still believe that when it comes to salvation, like, it was an agreement on both of us parts. Like, I came to and said, you know what? I'm ready to be a part of this thing. So I brought myself the way I am. Okay? I brought myself the way I am. And I decided to say, you know what? This salvation thing, let's try it out. All right? And then Jesus also comes halfway through. And then we now shake hands. And now we are now in partnership. And so because of that, there is a mindset of salvation that people have that involves both Christ and them. All right? And that's why that Christianity is very important. But when you recognize that in salvation, it was none of me and all of God. Hence, it means that there was no meeting halfway. 
he went all the way to come and meet me to bring me to himself so there is nothing that i did to involve the salvation all right therefore it is how i say it it's therefore impossible to rate this salvation by what i am able or not able to do all right because initially or in the first place there was nothing or there is nothing about what i have done all right that makes salvation valid or invalid i did not do anything to become involved in it um i did not not do anything to become involved in it either so it's not by my action or inaction that i partook of salvation all right therefore it cannot be by my action or inaction that something about salvation is going to be affected all right and that's why the physiology is very important it's important to be able to let people know see you were dead all right everything that was done in salvation was done for you okay you are a total receiver and that is the reason why you are saved by grace all right not of yourselves okay let me move on now to better explain what we see all right when we're talking about how that even when we were dead he has quickened us together now go to romans 5 and verse 8 romans 5 and verse 8. it says but god commended his love right toward us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us he says god commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us because i want to confirm that you can hear me from here can you hear me all right beautiful because i want to move around all right so as i was saying he says that god commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this would mean that the work of salvation, all right, was done for a man while the man was yet in sin. Now I'm trying to drive at the point here. Okay, the work of salvation was done for a man while the man was yet in sin. Now this is a very important detail to actually add. The reason is this: is that now when we talk about what god did for the man in christ now the work of the death the burial you know the ascension all right the resurrection and then the ascension to the right hand of the father the thing you must know right you must reckon that when jesus did this thing he actually did it as a man he did it as one man all right as one man it was only one man that died it was only one man that was raised from the dead it was only one man that rose up to heaven are we together? It was only one man that went to appear before God in heaven, as I'll show you very soon. Okay, but you must now reckon that when he did it, he did it for me. Now, at the point when he was doing it, of the truth, he was the only one. All right, but the reality of it is this: is that why he did that that he did, he actually did it for as many people that would receive it. Hence. How understanding so from the as I've always said it before, from the idea of observation, we only see one man being raised from the dead. All right, but from the idea of revelation, we see one man who was raised from the dead as a pattern for many. Look at Romans chapter 6, from verse 3 to 6. Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, from verse 3 to 6. Romans 6, from verse 3 to 6. All right. 
Romans 6, from verse 3, it says, Know ye not that so many of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? He says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, he says, we also should walk in the newness of life. Alright? So, he says that, you do not, don't you know that as many of us have been baptized into Christ, so baptized into his death? So, now, pay attention to this. We, so, when he died, it's not like he died, it's not like all of us died, because I feel like a lot of times we have to also explain this thing better, the idea of baptism, alright? When he did all these things, he did it as one person. We only identify with what he has done. Do you understand me? So we say that we died, he died, or he rose, he rose. It's not that he, you know, he did it together for us. No, no. He did it as one. We identify with what he did. And it's now as though we did it as well. Alright? And that's very important. Okay? So it would now be that when he did those things, it's as though we did it at the same time he was doing it. Even though we know, actually, that when he did it, he only did it as one person, as the only man. But we reckon from the eyes of Revelation that he did it for us. So it's as though when he did it, we all did it. Okay? So that's why I would say that when even when we were dead, he has quickened us together. Of the truth, he actually did not quicken us together, really. It was just one person. But because we reckon that he did it for all men, all right? So, when we see what he has done, we acknowledge, all right? We agree, and we receive that all that he has done, he did for us. So, if he was raised from the dead, from the eyes of revelation, we see that we are raised from the dead as well. Hallelujah. And because of that, we can say that we are quickened just as he was quickened. We cannot say it as though, even when we were dead, he has quickened us together. Of course, he did quicken us together at, the, at that point in time, because we were still dead. But we reckon that when he did it, he did it for every man that would believe him. And so we can say it as though those men were already a part of it. Okay? Because the reality of it is, I, I, let me also say this, that oftentimes, the mindset that we often have is, when we are getting saved, you know, when, for example, we believe the gospel, we get saved, we think that, you know, at that point in time, that's when, you know, Jesus is, you know, Jesus is suffering for your sin, you know, then you see the blood for you, you know. That's not true. Jesus has done it once for all. And this is the idea. This is also one of the reasons why it is, what you say, is your smart not to believe in eternal salvation. Now, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, okay? He died 2,000 years ago. You that you were born 2,000 and, or let's just say about 2,000 years after Jesus died, you somehow believe, all right, that what he did then is good enough to cater for your sins now. Right? But then somehow, you do not believe that after now, it is good enough to continue to cater for your sins. Like, somehow you believe that the potency begins with you. No. It has always been potent since it happened at that point in time. You join in its potency when you receive in salvation. You do not make it more potent, or you do not kickstart the potency at the point of your salvation. No, it has always been potent. You come into that potency when you received the message of the gospel, or when you came into salvation. All right, and from then onward, it continues. Like so, whether or not you joined in, it has been potent. It will always be potent. You only came into that potency, and so the potency continues to cover for everlasting. All right, so it's not as though 
you so so it doesn't make any sense that somehow the sin that came two thousand years after he he, he died he covers for it but the one that now came two thousand and one years after like one year after you are saved he doesn't cover for it and you have to become saved again it doesn't make any sense right because the reality of it is it doesn't matter whenever in future it comes about his sacrifice that he did once is potent for it for all times okay i hope, I hope that didn't confuse you but that's just to you know um put another light or another perspective into how to see eternal salvation the reality of it is the sacrifice is only done once or it was only done once and it covers for eternity jesus is not going to die again do you understand me so there's not going to be another sacrifice again so you the sacrifice is only done for sins once you only accept the sacrifice for sins once you don't now come again the way it is the way it works in the temple is anytime you come you come with a sacrifice you can't come tomorrow and you can't come tomorrow based on the sacrifice of yesterday if at all you have to use a sacrifice it has to be a new sacrifice so if there cannot be any more sacrifice there cannot be any more new acknowledging of the sacrifice you only acknowledge that sacrifice once simple just and you 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 begin to live as a function of that sacrifice just as for example in israel when you offer a, a the blood of the animal on the mercy seat bones you don't come in june let's say you offer this in january it doesn't matter it is until january next year before you offer another one you don't come in june and say ah omo i've done crazy stuff see i know that god said in january but omo I have to it's already six months i have to do something about it in june no the way god has said it will be is that it is until january next year do you understand so it doesn't matter it doesn't it say the one that you did in january covers up until january next year that is how god has decided it and so when god now also decides that i am going to also give one that will cover for everlasting so that there will be no other sacrifice needed again that one covers it it doesn't matter what your perspective is concerned it doesn't matter how you feel about it god has said this is how it should be and so that is how it's supposed to be all right so i just want to say that so let's move on efficiency 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 what i was trying to drive out there basically is the fact that the work was done once even when you were not yet a part it was done once right now that you've received it you can say it as though you have been ransomed from sin two thousand years ago. The idea of it is that you didn't become ransomed from sin until after you received the gospel, which is probably maybe about five years ago. But in the eyes of Revelation, it had always been done for you about two thousand years ago, right? But it's until when you come into it, or it's when you believe the gospel that you can now claim yourself to be a partaker of it, all right? That you can now identify with it, okay? I'm not trying to explain to you why he said it that way. Even when we were dead, all right, we have been quickened, all right. That's the reason he said it that way because it's as though when Jesus did it, we did it as well. Okay, so let me just continue. Ephesians two. Uh, so it says, even when we, even when we were dead in sins, as quickened us together and cried by grace, you are saved. It says, and has raised us up together, of course, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now it says he has raised us together, of course, just like I explained. The fact that Jesus is raised, all right depicts our raising up together the fact that jesus is raised alone is enough for us to say we are also raised together with him so i'm not going to spend, spend time there but then he says and made us sit together right and this is also something because i remember then when i when i just began to understand it i think my hundred level you guys to see it there is i used to believe that by the right hand of god you have 
you, you have God, like his own chair is very, very big. And there's no, there's no, like by the left side of God is, like maybe a door. The door that he used to use to enter his room or come out, you know, so when he wants to like, show his face. Okay. So he now sits on, so like there's nothing on the left, it's just the door or maybe a wall, anyone. And then on the right, you now have a very long queue to the right, you know. And on the right, you now have Jesus sitting down. You know, his own chair is it's like God's own, but it's not so big. It's not as big as God's own, but it's big too. Because you have to know this Jesus now. Do you understand? So, so, and then after Jesus, you now have, by his right, you now begin to have, you know, all believers there. And so I used to see that, ah, like, the closer you are to Jesus' side, the more spiritual. So, you have someone like that Jew, like, it's going to be like among maybe the first five that are by the side, right? And then you now have, you know, and then later, 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 you now begin to have people, you know, downwards, you know, based on how you know, spiritual they are. But the word, but let's examine the word there when it says to sit together, made us sit together. Now, the word made us sit together there is the, is the Greek word sukathizo. Sukathizo, S U G K A T H I Z O. Now, it's actually a word that it doesn't just necessarily mean to sit. It actually means to be in company with. All right? To be in company with. So it's not about just sitting down. It actually refers to being in company with someone or with something. All right? Together. Now, to move on, to understand this better, you would have to understand how the worship of the Old Testament was done. Now, let me just give you an, an, a, a brief um, explanation of that. Now, in the Old Testament, in, on the... Um, in the temple in the, old, in the Old Testament, you have the mercy seat, right? And then in the mercy seat, what you have there is you have the mercy seat that is above the Ark of the Tabernacle, right? And in the Ark of the Tabernacle, you have the um, the tablets of stone, the two tablets of stone. You have Aaron's rod, um, Aaron's rod above it inside the Ark of the Tabernacle, right? And then you now have the mercy seat above the Ark of the Tabernacle with two cherubims, you know. With two cherubims and their face and their um, their faces facing the top of the mercy seat and their wings covering over it or covering it, all right. And so when the um, high priest comes into the rest of all, he then sprinkles blood on the mercy seat. On the mercy seat, it's, I think it's been about seven times. I can't remember. On the mercy seat, all right. And that would denote a covering for sins for a year. Now, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 tells us that the law is a shadow of the good things that were to come. So, all these things we see here were typifications of things that would happen in Christ. So now, the high priest that was depicted in the Old Testament is actually Christ. In that, the high priest, basically, what does he do? He brings in the blood, alright, and sheds the blood on the mercy seat. So, Christ now, who is our high priest? He comes into the earliest of all. So, now, just as now in the Old Testament, you have both an high priest and then you have a sacrifice. So you have an high priest and then you have blood. But in Jesus' case, he is both the high priest and the sacrifice. So because he is the one coming in, he is the high priest. That is basically he is bringing himself in. So he's the high priest. And now there is the blood that is to be sprinkled. Now, if you read, um, I think it's Leviticus 17 and verse 11. You realize that it says that the life of an animal is in the blood or the life basically or the life is the blood blood basically is a typification of life so when we speak about the blood which was shed or as a sacrifice we're actually referring to the life now let me 
just put something to help you explain better. You know, you realize that any animal whose blood is shed is dead. All right, and that's kind of the reason why it couldn't live, it couldn't last forever because the animal is dead. So it, you you keep using the blood of things that are died. All right, but with Jesus, it's such that. And that's why the, the book of Hebrews has to explain this. Um, well, but I, I don't think we're able to get to that part this month. All right. But he tried to explain how that you he was made an high priest after the power of an endless life. Same as well with the sacrifice. This sacrifice is a living sacrifice. So it means once one year elapses, as you would expect the old the, the old covenant to be, when one year elapses, is we don't need to look for another sacrifice again. All right. This one is still living. So the sacrifice of last year. Can still go on into the sacrifice of this year. Why? Because this one has not died, so it's still a viable sacrifice. So it continues to abide as a viable sacrifice consistently. Look at Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-four. Hebrews nine, verse twenty-four. Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-four. Glory to Jesus. He says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hand, which I figure out the truth, but into heaven itself. So, so the, 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 the holy places that we see, that the, the, the holy place and then the holiest of all, are actually simplifications of where? Of heaven itself. So, the, the most holy place where you have the glory of God. Presence within the holiest of all, and then you have the mercy seat, would actually refer to heaven itself. And instead of having the glory of God as you see in the earthly tabernacle, you actually have God Himself present there. All right, now let's continue. He now says in verse 25, okay, he says in verse 24, he's not entering to the holy place made in hand, which I think of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he says, nor yet that he should offer himself often, which as the high priest entered to the holy place every year with the blood of others. Look at Hebrews 10 and verse 12. Hebrews 10, verse 12. He says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Having seen that what we have in the um, Old Testament or uh, in the Lord's are typifications of what you have in Christ. So when he says that there was a mercy seat, the question you want to ask yourself is, what is this What is the? Are you trying to say that there is one gold seat in heaven? Do you understand? Where Jesus is sitting down. You want to understand what it means by a mercy seat. Okay? What does he, what is he trying to say? Now, the one sat down. And now, you know it's interesting because this place talks about sat down. But in Hebrews 9 verse 24, he says he went to appear before God falls. So go and ask yourself, did you appear before God or did you sit down? Or is your appearing before God the sitting down? Now, let's just do a little study. The word sat down there, sat down, is the Greek word katizo. K-A-T-H-I-Z-O, katizo. It means to settle, to dwell. Now, interestingly, figuratively, it refers to an appointment. It refers to an appointment. Now, he says, now, let me just stop there. So, when we hear that he sat down at the right hand of God, it's not just what he did. It is what God did for him or to him. 
So the sitting down is not like Jesus got there and then he now, you know, you know, but no, it actually is referring to an appointment. Now that's one. Number two, right hand. The word right hand is the Greek word dexius. Dexius. You can check this on by yourself later on. It actually means right hand. However, it is from the group Greek word decomai. Decomai. D-E-C-H-O-M-A-I. Now, decomai means to receive. And this is very interesting. Decomai means to receive. All right. Now, the question you want to ask yourself, therefore, is that what does he mean by to receive? How, what is the correlation between right hand and receiving? Or what about the right hand implies receiving? Because as I said, as, I, as, I, as I've just said now, he's trying to explain to you that, as I just said right now, he's trying to explain to you and that the root word of um, dex, is it dexios now? Yes, dexios, which is right hand, is to receive, all right? In fact, I think this is something that we haven't paid attention to for a very long time, right? That the right hand, we, we just think is figurative. We don't think about it as the fact that the right hand actually implies now in Greek, or sorry, in Jewish history, when you talk about even, and this even applies even to like traditions like Yoruba, etc., etc. When you talk about the right hand, you use your right hand to collect things. When you want to collect things from like an elderly person, you don't stretch out your left hand. And I mean, this thing still happens in cultures even until today. You shut out your right hand to receive things. It's a show of respect. All right. And so when we speak about the right hand of God, it's actually, and that's why it's interesting to see that the word right hand here, it is from the root word that means to receive. The question you want to ask yourself is this, what was received? Because what that would mean is that for Jesus to be at the right hand of God, it means Jesus was at a position or was appointed at a particular position where he received something from God. So the question you should now want to ask yourself is this, what did he receive? What did he receive? And so let's see, go to uh, Acts chapter 2, Acts 2, verse 33. Because there's just the way we just say right hand of God. And often that I remember... When I try to explain this, I just say um, that, you know, it's, it's a figurative expression, right hand, when you call someone your right hand man, right, etc., etc. But when you realize that this word actually has a root word, right hand to receive, okay, the question is what to ask yourself is what is being received? That's the thing. What is being received? Okay? And so we're going to look at that. So, I said that and verse 33. So, question is, what did Jesus receive that's what did Jesus receive that symbolizes him being at the right hand of God? That's what you want to see yourself. So, we've seen before that the sitting down doesn't just refer to a sitting down, it's actually an appointment, it's because for an appointment. All right, so Jesus is appointed to a position where he's receiving from God. That's how you should see it. Jesus was appointed to a position where he received from God, which finalized the sacrifice. Because do not forget, the sacrifice is not finalized until. The blood is sprinkled on the message. And as we've seen already, that the blood actually typifies the life of Jesus. All right. So for the blood to be sprinkled on the message, Jesus would have to be seated at the right hand of God. And as we've seen so far, being seated at the right hand of God is being appointed to a position of receiving something from God, which is the finality of the work of salvation. I hope I'm not confusing you. Let me come again. That this is it again. As we see in the Old Testament, 
The sacrifice of sin is only perfected by the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat. And as you would see, the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat as seen in Jesus is actually Jesus sitting, all right, at the right hand of the Father, all right, in heaven. However, that phrase to sit at the right hand of the Father has a figurative meaning. We cannot see it from our physical perspective. We have to look at it from scripture to understand what he's trying to say. And we see that sitting down there is a word that is figurative for being appointed into something. The right hand is actually a phrase that means to be in a position of receiving from the person whose right hand you are, you are in. Are we together? So the question we want to ask ourselves is this. What is that right hand? Or better what is it that Jesus received that is qualified or that is explained to us as being at the right hand of God? That's what we want to know now. So look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. Acts 2, verse 33. He says, Therefore, now pay attention. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has said for this, which you now fear and hear. We're not done. Go to John 14, verse 16. John chapter 14 and verse 16. John 14. Verse 16. He says, I'll pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. He says, I will pray the Father, he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. John 16 and verse 17. Zero seventeen now. Sorry. Mm, I'm coming, sorry. Okay, verse seven. Verse seven. John sixteen, verse seven. Sorry. John sixteen, seven. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Notice how Jesus says, I will send him unto you. So, the idea of the Holy Spirit or the Comforter, so we see in Acts 2 and verse 33, it says, For being at the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has now shared for this which you now see and hear. So, meaning he received from the Father the promise of the Spirit and then gave it to all them that believe on him. So, the sitting of Jesus at the right hand of God is actually the receiving and the giving of the Spirit. When I say the receiving and giving of the Spirit, in Jesus or by Jesus, that Jesus received of the Father the promise of the Spirit and then gave it to everyone that will believe on him. That is his sitting at the right hand of the Father. That is his exaltation into heaven. All right, that as he is there, the sacrifice is complete, and because the sacrifice is complete, the spirit is now shed forth on all mankind. And that's why he says, Look at how he says, he says in, in John 16 and verse 7, that but if I depart, I will send him unto you. Meaning, the coming of the spirit is one that is dependent on my going. If I go, 
then I will send him unto you. I know that what he says in John chapter 14, verse 16. He says, I will pray the Father. He's praying the Father, of course, won't be that the father is begging the Father. No. But rather the fact that he will complete the work of salvation, all right, and then he will go to the Father. By him going to the Father and the work of redemption from sins be completed, the spirit would now be given to man. Are we together? And that spirit being given to man is the surety that Jesus is raised from the dead, is the surety that Jesus is alive forever. So, the sitting of Christ at the right hand of the Father is actually symbolic for the giving of the Spirit. When we see the operations of the Holy Ghost, what we reckon is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and that is that sins are forgiven forever. Are we together? So, when you hear seated at the right hand of God, what must always come to your mind, all right, is this, is that sitting at the right hand of God simply means one thing. The Spirit is given. Simple. Seated, appointed to a position where he can receive of God and give to man. Simple. That's what it means to be seated at the right hand of God. All right? And so, what when he has done that, he has given us the Spirit, and as a follower of Spirit, he has given us we are now confident that we are in him and he's in us. That is his placement of authority. It's not that Jesus is in heaven sitting down on one white and gold chair today. That's not the point. No. But rather the fact that because he is in heaven, he has given the spirit. That is the uh, finality or that is our confidence that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Hallelujah. Next verse, verse 7. I need to go around it. Verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. Having said all these things, he now goes on to say that in the ages to come, he says, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness. Now, the word age is there. It's the Greek word aeon, A-I-O-N. As you guys have always known, it's a word that means dispensation. All right? But then it says, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. The question, you want to ask a question, what age is he referring to? Because it's age to come. So is there in another dispensation that is coming after this dispensation? Is it the time of, is it what will happen after the rapture? But before you answer that, just wait. Continue. He says, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. So, he will show the superabounding expanse of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So, meaning, whatever he's talking about here is one that talks about the superabundant graciousness of God in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. That will sound familiar. That's the work of salvation. In the work of salvation, we see the exceeding mercies of God that is displayed as his kindness toward us through what he did in Christ Jesus. So, our understanding of the ages to come will not refer to another age that we are looking forward to. The age, in this context, the age to come will actually refer to the dispensation in which the salvation of 
the salvation of God in Christ Jesus was made available to all men. And this is the reason why, um, well, I'm going to talk about this this um, this month, that's this weekend, in fact, when I teach on the book of Hebrews, that when you say the place to come, the place to come doesn't always necessarily mean something that's going to happen. To come can also refer to what is happening right now. The context will explain better what to come means. All right, because a very good example you can see go to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2 and verse 17. Colossians 1 verse 17. We'll start from verse 16. It says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or the new moon, or the Sabbath of days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ. He says there are shadows of things to come, but the body is Christ, of course. So what that means is there is a shadow of Christ, simple. There are shadow, there is shadow of things to come. But the body, the actualization, the fulfillment is Christ. So there is a shadow of Christ who was to come, simple. There is a shadow of things to come whose body is Christ. The body means the finality. That's the actual thing. So, the, you know, you have a, before you to have a shadow, you need to have a body. And that's something very important. So there is a body. And as a reason of the body, the shadow is cast. So the shadow you see is often a depiction to the fact that the body is around. Are you together? So those things are a shadow, but the reality of it actually, the actual thing, the body of it itself is Christ. So those things are just a shadow of Christ, simply. Right? But then it says they are shadow of things to come. So what was to come there would actually refer to what refer to Christ, this position of Christ. So when you say to come, to come doesn't always just refer to something that is going to happen. Your, on the, your, your study by context will let you realize what to come actually means, right? So, let's go back to Ephesians 2 and round up. It seems like today I might end earlier. Please thanks for me. So, so, Ephesians 2, verse 7. So, that's in the dispensation to come. So, what is that dispensation to come? It's just referring to the dispensation that we are now in. That's the dispensation in which the sacrifice of Christ has been done, right? It says, in the dispensation to come, he will show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. So, meaning, when we look at what God has done for the man in Christ in salvation, we see the superabundance of his grace in his kindness toward us. Are we together? So, when we talk about the beauty or the magnificence or how glorious or how kind God is or the goodness of God, and this song that is very important to note, the goodness of God is fundamentally seen in the work of salvation. The goodness of God is not in as much as those things are good. God healed your sister. You know, he provided for your need, etc., etc. Those things are good and they are true. All right? But they are not the fundamental depiction of God's love or God's kindness. The primary depiction of God's kindness to us in Christ is what he did to us in Christ Jesus, which is salvation. Are we together? Such that we reckon that when we see a man, because this would make you realize one of the things that the Ephesians 2 will do for you is that Ephesians 2 will increase your discernment when it comes to natural things. That a man has all the money in the world but doesn't have Christ. Bible says he's a dead man. He's still dead in trespasses and sins. He might be looking like he's alive, he might be looking like he has money, he might be looking like he's doing well, but the reality of it is that he is dead spiritually. Are we together? And so when you see such a man, you are seeing a man who God has shown kindness but has not received that kindness. Are you together? And so, when you are thanking God for his life, you cannot be thanking God for his life and you are, you are making it, you know, there's a way people, you know, 
pray and thank God for the lives of rich people. Like it's it's like ah, this is what God does in a man's life, you know. So so and of course it's God's blessings, but you do not when it comes to the scale of it, the most important thing any man can thank God for is the salvation of his soul or the salvation of his spirit, because therein is the super abundant mercy and kindness of God's sin. All right. It's good that God provides needs. It's good that God, you know, heals our sicknesses, you know, and he does all those things. It's good, all right? The reality of it is he can do his both to the believer, to the unbeliever. But the one thing that the believer can boast of, and wherein we see the super abundant nature of God's kindness, is only in the work of salvation for the man that believes. So the believer is the recipient of the super abundant expanse, all right, of God's kindness to Christ Jesus. Only the believer is. And it is something that only the believer can give thanks for. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. First of all, round up here for today. But, you know, before we go, I just want to give thanks. All right? We're going to give thanks shortly. And I want you to thank God for the work of salvation. The work of salvation. How that, you know, it's, 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 when you see the sheer the sheer brilliance of salvation and how you were totally uninvolved in the work of salvation. Everything from the beginning to the end, it literally was done for you and then just presented to you on your lap. That all you have to do is just to receive it and come into it. And therein, there are things that have been done. Do you realize that in the work of salvation, you have justification, sanctification, redemption, the giving of the spirits, right? All of those things all together. And you did not receive them one after the other. You literally just received salvation and you received all of those things at the same time. That you do not know how to start saying, oh, how will I be justified? How will I be sanctified? How will I be redeemed? How will I receive the Spirit? No. You just came into salvation and all those things were given to your account. Out of the graciousness of God. If something was giving things to God about. Something was giving things to God about. So this one will give things. Just show it. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for your work of salvation. The work of your Spirit in us. The work that you completed in us, you know, that your son died for our sins, even when we do not know that we need a savior. Bible says that for God commanded his love to us, that in the while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. You know, Bible says that for a righteous man, one it says, it says for, for a man, one could even try to die. For a righteous man, you could even dare to die. But God commanded his love toward us. In the while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love hath no man. That a man should lay down his life and he did it for us, completed the work of salvation. He didn't just die and rise, rise from the dead and say, You know what? I've done a good part of the work. All that I just needed now is for it to ascend. Then I leave that to you. But no, he did it completely and then just carried it and gave it to us for free. Doing nothing. That's the exceeding greatness of his kindness. And he says he put it up. So he did it and he, he just showed it out to the world. And that's the reason why angels look at it and they are shocked. You know, Bible says that you know, even the angels desire to look into it. They want to because they, they can't seem to get it that the God of the world or the God of this universe or the entire world will just decide to come as a man and then die and be raised from the dead and you know finish up the work of salvation and just give it to man without the man doing anything. It sounds crazy. It sounds crazy, and he did all of that. First the world for salvation, but then also as a show to the world of the exceeding greatness of his kindness. The exceeding greatness of his kindness. Oh, thank you, Father. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise and glory, Father. And you see, this is the confidence that we have that if he could give us his son freely, how shall he not also with him give us all things? That's our confidence. That's the confidence we have. If he could have given us his son without us asking, before we even knew that we needed saving. You know, it's beautiful that the moment we knew we needed saving, we already had the sacrifice done. Is that beautiful? He decided to show us that his, his exceeding graciousness in his kindness to Christ Jesus. He just decided to show it to us. Nothing. We need nothing. Nothing. Nothing to work with. Nothing to merit it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. We give you praise and glory, Lord Father. We thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your Son, the giving of your Son, the giving of your Spirit. And thank you, Father, for the confidence that we have as a reason of your word, as a reason of your salvation. This confidence we have as an anchor for our soul, what's sure and steadfast, and it and preserved in heaven for us. We are sure. We are sure that if it is you that came as a man and you were raised from the dead, you are raised from the dead upon the power of an endless life. But it is impossible for the seeds that you carry to die. It's impossible for this man who is seated at the right hand, at your right hand forever. Is it possible that this man dies? And so that's our confidence that forever we are saved. Eternally we are justified. Eternally we are sanctified. Eternally we are saved. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. All right. So I just I just want you to um the, the, the thing is we can we can oftentimes hear these things again and again and then we time get used to it, right? That it doesn't carry as much space in our hearts as it used to, right? But salvation is great. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? It, it, that's what you have to call it. It felt like calling it salvation didn't do justice. He said, so great salvation. So great salvation. So the, the work of salvation should, every single time when you hear about it, you should have an awe and reverence in your mind. As much as your mind is filled with joy and gladness for what God has done for you, there must be that awe and reverence in your mind. You know, some writer says, may we never lose our wonder. You know, wide-eyed and mystified, may we be just like a child, you know, gazing at the glory of our King. So every time when you hear about salvation, about the work of salvation, your heart should be merry. You know, there should be that awe and reverence in your heart that the God of the world, the God of this universe, cares about me so much that he came to this world as a man to die for the sins of man. And then he's raised. And then he did everything. You know, it's, 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 it would be beautiful enough if he did everything and then gave it to us as a price. The, the reality of it is, it doesn't matter what amount the price is. It would be too. It will still be so little. You know, even if you get every and then says for you to receive what I've done, you have to pay two hundred k dollars. To be honest, it will still be a gross underestimation for what you have done. And then it makes it does it like it's a crazy deal. And then says, you know what, you want to receive it just. It's crazy, but that salvation defies human understanding. Hallelujah, glory to Jesus. So please and please, I don't want you to get too used to this part. Let's. Salvation always well in you, that joy, that awe, every single time, every single time that you can scream upon your lungs and say, I'm saved once and for all by the sacrifice of Jesus. I was once dead in sin and trespasses, have been picking together with Christ, and I'm saved once and for all, never to die. Hallelujah.
Glory to Jesus. 